Uh, it's good to hear the sound of socialization. Also, it was good to hear the sound of some original worship music. Um, not coming through laptop speakers to hear harmonies. Um, my daughter's bunny is also in the room this morning. Just want to let everyone know that. And uh, it's good to see you all. Thank you uh, for being present with us today. So, yeah, the original music, if you didn't let that second song in my mother's womb, that's all's well. That is Scott McTaggart and his brother and sister-in-law. And what a beautiful song. And thank you for leading us in that. I think it was the first time we sang it as a community, right? What a gift uh, to be able to do that and sing that together. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be in this space with you. My name's Nelson, and uh, shouts to all those joining via live stream. Uh, today, we are wrapping up our series, our explicit series on the third way. But as we've said, I think a few times, this is by no means the end of our exploration of what it is going to mean to be a third way church. If third way is brand new language for you, maybe because you're brand new at Artisan, or you've been trying to pay attention and it's still not landing for you because everything's harder during COVID, or it's summer, or what have you, or like me, you just sometimes feel like uh, Michael Scott in that episode of The Office where they have a surplus and Oscar has to explain to Michael Scott what a surplus is, and he's not quite, it's, it's like, explain it to me like I'm five. And Oscar tries again, there's the analogy of the lemonade stand, and it's still, it's like cut to opening music. Um, so if any of these scenarios feel like they fit where you're at, where you're at with regard to the third way, you're in luck, because I've got a story that is meant to help children, including your own precious inner child, to understand the third way. So I hope that it'll even offer some of, uh, something to those of us who feel like we've got the third way nailed. Um, I'm gonna share it, but I wanna pray first. Please God, let this story be helpful, amen. Okay, so there, uh, there once was a small kingdom consisting of numbers, one to 12. I told you it was a small kingdom. One day, an argument broke out among the numbers who should be crowned as ruler of the kingdom. Here's what one said. I should be queen because I am the sum of all numbers. I have many parts, but if I add them all up, I get one me. I see many me's in this room, and if you add them all together, you get one community. Many communities add up to one city, so on, provinces, countries, continents, and finally, if you add it all up, you get one world, one love, one heart. Let's get together and feel all right. So one embodies the concept of unity represented by the circle. This image, if you can't read it, says, I am the biggest of all numbers. Now, two, by contrast, found the world of one, same thing, kind of boring, so he introduced the exciting world of polarity. As the earth rotates and orbits around the sun, we get day and night, hot and cold, up and down. Two said, I should be king because I bring action, excitement, and drama into the boringness, same oldness of one. He's represented by the yin-yang symbol. 
The image says, I bring to the boring world of one, the exciting world of opposites. Now three listened intently to one and two. Then it was her turn to speak. Three decided she didn't want to live in the warring world of two. So she offered a way that leads to peace, synthesis, a third way to escape the often oppressive limitations of duality. Out of black and white, I bring three primary colors, she said. Out of woman and man, I bring something new, a child. Three is the shape of the triangle. It incorporates or synthesizes the shapes and colors of one and two to create newness. The image, this one has especially small writing, says, grievous, two opposites, always battling each other. I bring peace to the horrible, warring world of number two. An American teacher and author by the name of Stephen Levy used this story with his grade four students to represent the third way. So when his students found themselves in conflict, they would describe their fights and disputes as being stuck in the kingdom of two. Then they expressed their attempts at bringing resolution and reconciliation as finding three. Finding three. All the love, grade four students. And thanks for the sermon title. So was my prayer answered? Was the story helpful? I sure hope so. Don't answer if it wasn't. Richard Rohr put it this way. The dualistic mind upon which most of us were taught to rely is simply incapable of the task of creating unity. It automatically divides reality into binary opposites and does almost all its thinking inside of this highly limiting frame. It dares to call the choosing of sides thinking because that is all it knows how to do. Really good thinking then becomes devising a strong argument for our side and against another side, race, group, political party, or religion. The third way leads us beyond the limitations of dualism with imagination that is both grace-informed and love-infused. Where do we see the third way in action most clearly? In a person. Jesus is the third way architect. When you read the Gospels, we see Jesus frequently revealing how the dualistic mind will never find its way to a true love of God and neighbor. Recall a few stories with me briefly. John 8, the one about the woman caught in adultery whom the religious elite brought to Jesus with the question, should we stone her or not? To which Jesus responds, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Matthew 22, the one where some Pharisees try to trap Jesus in his words with the question, should we pay the tax or not? To which Jesus responds, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. John 9, here's the question that came this time from his very own dualistically minded disciples. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The answer, neither. Mark 3, Jesus goes into the synagogue where the religious elite are once again looking for something to pin on Jesus. A man with a crippled hand is present, so they watch Jesus like hawks to see what he's going to do. It is the Sabbath after all, and the Sabbath has rules. Their question, which is implied and never actually spoken, 
but still intuited by Jesus is this. Can we work on the Sabbath or not? Jesus flips the question on its head and says, what's lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And then he heals the man. Time after time, page after page, story after story, Jesus breaks the either-or principle or archetype, and he leads the conversation towards a higher principle of the third way, one that couldn't be conceived by those who thought righteousness was all about being on the right side. Jesus is not only the architect and designer of the third way, he is its very embodiment. Now, come to think of it, the Apostle Paul was no slouch at third way teaching either. That might sound surprising to some of us. Paul often plays off apparent contradictions, ideas like flesh and spirit, law and freedom, male and female. He holds them both and eliminates neither until he arrives at the reconciling third, which could also be called mercy or grace a wide-open, beautiful, spacious place that results in a new creation. The clearest, most concise example of this in Paul's writing is probably the third chapter of his letter to the church in Galatia, where he writes, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor freed, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So where do we find our oneness, according to Paul, in a person? Paul, like Jesus, and in looking to Jesus, was an expert at finding three. The problem is, a lot of people try to understand Paul at the level of the initial binaries he articulates, usually interpreting one as totally good and the other as totally bad. And I think that's one reason some people aren't the biggest fans of Paul. Zooming out even one more level, as we think about scripture, we notice the scripture as a whole often finds three as well. Consider how the biblical record subverts these other dualities by inviting our imagination to a different place entirely. Spirit and matter are reconciled or synthesized in incarnation. God and humankind synthesized in Jesus. Life and death in resurrection. One and three become three in one. Earth and heaven, the new Jerusalem. Recall the story of the three numbers, the kingdom, and the, th the key words that each one symbolized. One symbolizing unity, two symbolizing polarity, and three synthesis. I want to introduce another voice to you. Uh, anyone heard of Cynthia Bourgeau before? A few of us? No one? Yes, a few of us. This is good. So Cynthia Bourgeau is one of our best living wisdom teachers within the Christian tradition. And this is how she explains the nuance of the third way. The interplay of two polarities calls forth a third. And a third becomes the mediating or reconciling principle between them. So in contrast to a binary system, which finds stability in the balance of opposites, the ternary system stipulates a third force that emerges as the necessary mediation of these opposites, and that in turn, this is the really crucial point, generates a synthesis at a whole new level. 
It's a dialectic whose resolution simultaneously creates a new realm of possibility. So let's bring this to an earthly level as well. So Jesus, show, or she shows us how Jesus offers a picture of this when in chapter 12 of John's gospel, Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. So with this scenario, if the seed does fall to the ground, it enters a sacred transformative process. Seed, the first or the affirming force, meets ground or second, the denying force. But even in this encounter, nothing will happen until sunlight. The third reconciling force enters the equation. Then, among the three, they generate a sprout. Sprout, which is the actualization of the potency latent in the seed, and a whole new field of possibility. So, how does this play out in the, in the situation where Jesus encounters the woman caught in adultery? This time, I want us to hear the story together. So, John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Do we notice how Jesus brings third force to this woman's situation? The religious insiders present Jesus with two opposing polarities. Stoning the woman, which would result in a gruesome, violent, humiliating loss of life. Or freeing her, which would result in a blatant, brazen disregard for the law that made up the core of Jewish religious life. This is what theologians call a classic dualistic pickle. Actually, I just made that up. I don't, I don't think anyone has ever called it that until now, but that's how I like to think of it. This is a classic dualistic pickle. You're welcome. What does Jesus say then in the response uh, in response to this, let the one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Oh, I so love this story. Bourgeau says, he finds the thing that will put the terrible two binaries in a completely new relationship and creates a new kingdom called compassion, called forgiveness. Bourgeau continues, the manifestation of love is there in the situation, but you need to find it. 
third force is there because the Trinity is real. And if you are alert to it, you will be able to find it. Problem is that most of the world is third force blind. Isn't that the truth? We seem hopelessly stuck in oppressive dualities in so many different realms of life, in our relationships, in politics, in our economies, churches, denominations, collectivism and individualism, left and right, liberal and conservative, traditional and progressive, reason and empathy, sense and sensibility, in-group, out-group. Have you felt it on a personal level? That sense that love is possible in a tough situation, you know you need to find it. And you may have even been able to find it before, but this time it's different. For some reason, it's hard to find. We're not so confident there is a third way or the Trinity is even real. What do you do? How might we follow Jesus into finding three? into a new realm of possibility. To ask the question another way, what might it look like to follow Jesus out of third force blindness that so often keeps us trapped in the warring world of two? Well, I've been wondering if the answer has something to do with shifting the metaphor from fighting or warring to dancing. I've been following some of Richard Rohr's wisdom on this. And I want to suggest that the Jesus way, the Christian way, at its heart is a lifelong journey of growing in what it actually means to love. Have you ever tried to love someone and then realized you're not very good at it? <laughs> is it just me? <laughs> Terry and I are celebrating 24 years of marriage in just over a week. 24 years, you guys. And... oh. It is a mercy. Um, and in so many ways, I still feel like such a beginner in loving well. Truth is, we're not always good at it, especially when starting out. We're mostly meeting our own needs. The word is codependency. Love that's mostly still impure and self-seeking. And in fact, not really love at all. So we have to pull back. We have to learn the great art of detachment, which isn't the same as aloofness or indifference. Rohr puts it this way, our religion is neither solely detachment nor solely attachment. It's a dance between the two. It's neither entirely isolation as symbolized by the desert, nor is it complete engagement as symbolized by the city. Jesus moves back and forth between desert and city. In the city, he feels himself losing perspective, love, and center. So Jesus goes out to the desert to discover the real again. And when Jesus is in the desert, the passionate union with the Father drives him back to the pain of the city. That's some deep wisdom right there, friends. This, this transformative dance can be thought of as the third way, the middle way between fight and flight. So some people's primary posture is to take on the world, fight it, change it, fix it, rearrange it. Other people deny there's a problem at all. There's nothing that needs fixing. This is suiting me just fine. Everything's beautiful, they say, and look the other way. 
both these instincts avoid holding the tension, the pain, and the essentially tragic nature of human existence. The contemplative, transformative stance or dance is the third way, says Rohr. We stand in the middle. We neither take on the world from another power position nor deny it out of fear of the pain it will inevitably bring. Instead, here's what we do. We hold the dark side of reality and the pain of the world until it transforms us, knowing that we are both complicit in the evil and can participate in wholeness and holiness. Once we can stand in that third spacious way, neither directly fighting nor denying and fleeing, we are in the place of grace out of which genuine newness can come. This is where creativity and new forms of life and healing emerge. Love that. That's what we do. Or to be more specific, this is what we follow Jesus in doing because what is the cross itself? Besides a picture of the third way, our orthodox siblings define the cross event as the meeting place of divine love and human affliction. As the hymn we sometimes sing puts it, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? So. I've tried to paint a picture from a number of different angles to tell a story, to look at Jesus, to look at Paul, to look at the whole of scripture, to listen to Bourgeau, to listen to Rohr. What ends up happening if we live into this? As we keep choosing the spacious way, as we keep growing in what it actually means to love, as we set our hearts on finding three, we find that gradually our whole motivation changes. Our politics, economics, our classism, sexism, racism, homophobia, all the games we play to feel superior lose their appeal and their one-time agenda and rationale. We move beyond the oppressive dualisms and we begin to think and feel different about a good many things. Rohr says it so well. Your motivation foundationally changes from security, status, and sabotage to generosity, humility, and cooperation. And then he says, if you don't want to go there, you'd better stay away from the Holy One. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, what if we do want to go there? How might we learn to dance our way into the third way? I think there are many possible avenues. And I think one way is to give ourselves to contemplative practices that, that put us in that space, that dance between city and desert. And one of the best, easiest ones that I can think of is the examine. We, we've prayed the examine uh, before as a community, as a leader cohort, as smaller groups, neighborhood groups. At our first Sunday gathering in January for the past couple of years, it's something we've been doing together in this space as a way of reflecting on what has been and, and, and uh, heading into what lies ahead. And it's something you can also practice individually, of course, but as a way of responding to this invitation to live into a third way, I want to invite us to engage it just briefly now here uh, together before we come to the Lord's table.
If you're not familiar with it, the prayer of examine is an ancient, simple practice of reviewing your moments or your days with God. It's a way of listening to our lives together with God, naming and holding both the pain and struggle of our daily experience and the places that give us life and help us participate in wholeness. So we're going to take about three minutes in all to do this. Here's how it'll be divided. I'm going to ask two questions, and I'll give a moment for silent reflection between each. Then I'll conclude with a short invitation to rest in and with God. Today, we won't take time to share with each other uh, in this moment, but please feel free, feel invited to do so after the gathering, maybe as you're sitting down to lunch. So... As you're able in these plastic chairs or standing or whatever, find as comfortable a place as a position that you can find. And I invite you to reflect on this question for one minute. For what moment in the past day or two am I most grateful? For what moment in the past day or two am I most grateful? And now, for what moment in the past day or two am I least grateful? For what moment in the past day or two am I least grateful? We'll hold silence for one minute again. ones, I invite you to spend a moment simply resting in silence with God. Allow your heart to be held by the one who loves you most. Release all you can into God's care and enjoy love's delight in you, the beloved. 